1 Corinthians chapter 13 If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So now faith, hope and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Growing up, in the 70s and 80s in a small rural Queensland church, even as a preteen and a teenager, I could come, sometimes catch a sense of an undercurrent of disconnect or distrust um, or maybe even a bit of fear amongst its members. Uh, it was something which pretty much most of the time was kept hidden away pretty well, but sometimes even for me a kid, I could see that the people of the church that I belonged to, well, they just weren't on entirely the same page as each other. In a nutshell, Group A saw themselves as being spiritual and open to the spirit, and they saw Group B as being unspiritual and opposed to the spirit. At the same time, Group B saw themselves as being discerning and faithful, and they saw Group A as being deceived and having an arrogance of a feeling of spiritual superiority. Uh, now, what was going on? Um, well, I now know that I'm a little bit older. I now know this was the story of a local denominational church grappling with how it would respond to what has become known as the charismatic renewal movement. Um, it's a story which I've since learned wasn't unique to the church that I grew up in. In fact, in every town that I've lived in since then, I've heard a similar story being told of how in the 70s and 80s there was a very real angst uh, felt by these churches. Um, I don't believe it's because of the movement of the Holy Spirit at all, but it was because of the way these churches behaved through this whole renewal movement. And even the very word charismatic probably sends a shudder down some people's spines. Oh, he's one of those happy, clappy sorts of preachers. Quickly, we'd better install some very low-hung ceiling fans to discourage any charismatic tendencies. We don't want anybody putting their hands up. Uh, the word charismatic, though, this is what it means. It just comes from, it's a Greek word, charisma, which simply means gift. 
So do I believe that God still gives his gifts to the church? Yes, I do. I surely do. The distaste that some people have been left with of this word charismatic is the way the spiritual gifts have been used by some people in the church without love. And as we've been reading this letter to the Corinthians, we've been seeing exactly this, the way that the spiritual gifts were tearing that church in Corinth apart, not the gifts themselves, but the people who were using them and the way they were using and the attitude that they had and, and the misuse of those gifts. And the misuse of spiritual gifts still tears churches apart today. Anyway, back to my story. For those who didn't live through the 70s and 80s, um, put up your hands. Yes, there's a lot of you, isn't there? This makes me feel really old because uh, to me this just doesn't seem that long ago. Um, for you guys, this is going to be a bit of a, a lesson on modern history in the church. It, it's the experience that many local churches went through in the not-so-distant past. Now, for a number of older folk, they'll remember this time as, as a time of excitement and renewal as they experienced God in a way that they'd never experienced him before. But some other fo older folk will remember it as a time of angst and pain. And as we study this letter to the church in Corinth, I cannot help but see some very real similarities between the mistakes that the Corinthian church had made and the mistakes that were being made in our local churches and what happened even in this town here. By the way, I've given today's message the title, The Temporary But Critical Nature of Spiritual Gifts. So let me set the scene. In Acts chapter 2, we have the story of the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And it's pretty obvious through the letters of the New Testament and, and particularly in, in the letter that we're studying at the moment, 1 Corinthians, that the experience of the early church very much included the practice of a vast range of spiritual gifts. And it's also interesting that the book of the Bible that has the most teaching on spiritual gifts happens to be the one we're in now, and it's actually a letter which was written to a church who were misusing spiritual gifts. Something which was given for the upbuilding of the church was tearing the church apart. Some in the Corinthian church had become self-centered and arrogant, and they weren't loving. And the gifts had become all about them instead of being about the church. And so the early church, it seemed to have this vast range of spiritual gifts of all sorts. Some of the gifts were quite noticeable and, you know, and somewhat spectacular, such as the gifts of healing and miracles and prophecy and knowledge and speaking in other languages and interpretation of other languages. Some of the gifts, though, they were still very important, but they weren't nearly as noticeable or quite so spectacular. Gifts like the gift of mercy, wisdom discernment, faith, evangelism, pastoring, apostleship, teaching, serving, administration, exhortation, that, that's just encouraging somebody, urging them on, uh, the gift of giving. There was a vast range of spiritual gifts, some of them spectacular, some of them not quite so spectacular, but all absolutely essential for the building up of the church. Now, I said a couple of weeks ago, the Lord is not looking for talented individuals to work for him. 
He's looking for willing vessels for him to work through. And that's the purpose of the spiritual gifts. God does his amazing work through us as we do what, what we know in our own strength we could never, ever possibly achieve. But somewhere through the years of history, the spiritual giftedness of the church seemed to become not so apparent, not so evident. They seemed to wane. Now, I don't think there'd be too many people who would deny that the spiritual gifts of teaching and mercy, wisdom, serving, exhortation and giving and the like um, disappear. That they, they seem to have continued on for centuries um, to a greater or lesser extent, but still continuing. But some people identify some of the gifts as the sign gifts, the gifts such as speaking in other languages, the gifts of prophecy, miracles, healing and the like, and they say it's, the, it's these gifts that over the years seem to have become less apparent, such that in the church that I grew up in, in the decades before I was born, well, they still prayed for a miracle, but they didn't believe in the gift of miracles. Now, we pray for a miracle here almost every Sunday. We, well, I reckon every Sunday we pray for a miracle here. Even if we pray for rain, we're praying for a miracle. And we do a lot of that here, don't we? We live in a dry climate and we're always, God, give us rain. We need rain. And we know that we're totally dependent on him. What are we asking for when we're praying for rain? We're asking for a miracle. So we pray for a miracle. But, we didn't that, but they didn't believe in the gift of miracles. Now, what's the gift? What's the difference? Well, every time we pray, if God answers that prayer, it's a miracle. But some people would have the gift of miracles such that they have a reputation that when they pray for something extraordinary to happen, it's more likely to happen than not. And we see that in some of the stories in the Bible. Um, also, the church that I lived in, they believed in healing. We would always pray for the sick, that God would heal them and make them well. But the gift of healing wasn't seen as such a thing. What's the difference? Well, if you're some, how do you know if you have the gift of healing? Well, we all pray for the sick, don't we? But if you're someone who, when you pray for the sick, they're very often healed, hey, you might have the gift of healing. And then the gifts of tongues and prophecy, well, they certainly weren't expected to turn up. Now, why is that? Had they fallen into disuse and so God took them away, were they no longer needed? Or were they still there but... Nobody was really willing to use them because, hey, it wasn't the done thing. I mean, even back then, we were terribly British, you know, and, and we got to do the done thing. Now, I don't know why these gifts weren't noticeably active in the church, but I do have my suspicions. In chapter 14, Paul says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And the thing is, in many churches, that wasn't being taught. We weren't being taught to eagerly desire spiritual gifts. And we certainly weren't being taught to desire gifts like prophecy or miracles or speaking in other languages. Uh, we didn't eagerly desire them. We weren't praying, God, please give us these gifts. Is it any wonder they didn't turn up? 
Now, who knows what spiritual gifts were or were not active in that church? That The church still had some Bible teaching, but was teaching an act of human training and effort or was it an expression of the spiritual gift of teaching? I don't know. I can't tell the difference sometimes. Was pastoral care carried out as a must-do task? Or was it an expression of the gifts, the spiritual gifts of pastoring and mercy? Was the person who mowed the lawn and set up the chairs for worship and cleaned the toilets doing this because he was a good bloke? Or did he have the spiritual gift of service? I don't know. How do you tell? Let's go to today's reading. Verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Spiritual gifts are temporary, but love never ends. How are spiritual gifts temporary? They will pass away. They will cease. Now here comes the question. When will they cease? When perfection comes. When completion comes. Even if we have the gift of knowledge, we don't know everything. God only reveals to his servants what he wants them to know. If somebody has the gift of knowledge, that doesn't mean that they know everything. That doesn't mean that they have all the answers. That doesn't mean that they know every little intimate detail of my life and yours. It'd be scary if they did. Those with the gift of... God only gives them what they need to know, what he wants them to know. We only know in part. Those with the gift of prophecy only prophesy in part. God gives them a specific word for a specific person or a specific group of people for a specific time. I'm always quite wary when a church advertises we've got a prophet coming. Um, and almost invariably, at some time during the service, uh, that person will be expected to perform. Now, please, don't, don't think I'm saying that they're, we're expecting them to get up and put on an act. That's not what I mean by the word perform. For the want of a better word, I use that word. Um, what I mean is we expect them to perform. We expect them to come up with the goods, right? We're expecting them to have a prophecy for us. We expect that for every individual that gets up out of the seat and comes out the front for prayer, that this prophet is going to have a word for every single person. And wouldn't we be disappointed if he said to nine out of the ten people up the front, sorry, but God hasn't given me anything for you today. I'm not going to try and make anything up. I'm not going to try and guess what God says for you. But God's given me a word for this person, but not for you nine. Wouldn't we be terribly disappointed? But the thing is, a true prophet won't have a word for every individual, and we shouldn't expect them to. We're told here that we only prophesy in part. We shouldn't expect that a prophet will have a word for every person, or a word at all, for that matter, on a given day. It is the Lord who reveals as the Lord wills and as he desires. 
But we're going to leave talking about prophecy for the moment. We're going to talk about the gift of prophecy more. I think, not sure if it's next week or the week after we come to that. All right, so the spiritual gifts, at least the ones mentioned here, they will pass away, they will end when the perfect comes. But when is that? Clearly, he's talking about when Jesus returns. He's talking about when we'll be in glory with him. And to explain it, he compares the now with the then. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then see face to face. Now, you got a picture there for me, Billy? For 13 years, I've been sitting on this photo waiting desperately for a chance to use it. Uh, <laughs> it's a great photo, isn't it? I've been looking forward to it so much. When I was in Adelaide in 2005, I was down there for a church meeting and I had a bit of time to kill. I, went, I found myself at a museum. And it just so happened that at that museum, they had an exhibit from ancient Egypt and among the items was a bronze mirror. And I thought, woohoo, I'm going to take a photo of that. And one day, I'm going to give a message on 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And that photo is just going to be the best thing to illustrate this. I hope you're all suitably impressed. You know, a, a highly polished piece of bronze was quite a prized possession for the vanity of the ancients. But compared to our modern mirrors, it's pretty hopeless. Now, to get this next photo, I contorted myself a bit to be able to get my hand as a reflection in that mirror. Now, I want you to understand that's not a shadow. That's not a shadow of my hand. That is the reflection of my hand in the mirror. So can you see how good their mirrors are? Not very good. Although I'm sure it would make me look a lot better. It's not a very clear image, but having that photo, it really helps to explain what verse 12 is talking about. It says, now we see in a mirror dimly. That's the sort of mirror they had, right? Now we see in a mirror dimly. It's very, wow, you've got to guess a fair bit. I, I wouldn't want to try and dig a splinter out of my hand with that mirror, right? Our knowledge of God is so imperfect. We know him a little bit, but one day we'll see him face to face. Imagine that. Being able to gaze into the very face of God and live. Hey? Wow. That, that's what glory is all about. How will we be glorified? Well, because we're going to be in the very presence of God himself. You know, when Moses went into the presence of God, He'd come out and his face would be glowing and they'd have to cover it up so he didn't scare everyone after death. And Paul says, Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. Do we know everything about God? Of course not. How could we possibly? We don't even know a tiny snippet about this earth that we live on that he created. We know nearly nothing about the universe that he created. How can we know everything there is to know about God? I don't know. But when Jesus returns, I will know. And for those of us who have inquisitive minds, 
And it's like, wow, what a bonanza. We're going to know stuff. We're going to know. But some of us don't have inquisitive minds and, well, we don't really care. We don't need to know, but that's fine. But get this. God knows. And God knows us. God knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. God knows our every thought, our every emotion, our every hurt, our every joy. He knows our every betrayal, our every failure, our every victory. He he knows us fully. He understands us completely. And that's the way that we're going to know him. We're going to know God as he knows us. That is an intimate knowledge. All right, so we're not going to have need of spiritual gifts when Jesus returns. They're going to pass away. We won't need the gift of knowledge because we will know. We won't need teachers or preachers. What are we going to teach? Hey, who are we going to teach? Nobody's going to care. Nobody's going to want to listen to me anymore. Thank goodness for that. Hey, I'm going to get retired. We won't need the gift of speaking in other languages or the gift of interpretation because we will be communing with God face to face. Now, to me, this is just the most natural and the most straightforward way to understand this. That when Jesus returns, the gifts are going to pass away because perfection has come. We've been perfected. We've been glorified in him. But not everybody holds this view. Uh, There is another view called, and sorry for the big word, the cessationist view. Uh, And these people believe that at least some of the spiritual gifts, the gifts that are known as the sign gifts, have already passed away and they went away a long time ago. Uh, Some believe that they passed with the end of the apostolic age, all right? So that means when the last of the apostles died, that's the apostle John, so when John carked it, They believe the sign gifts stopped. Others believe that it was with the formation of the canon. Now, that's not the thing that goes boom. Um, Canon is a word that theologians like to use to describe when they chose what books were going to go into our Bible. So when the writings of the apostles were all gathered together into what we now have as the New Testament, they believe that some of the gifts vanished. At that point. And that's actually quite a common belief in a lot of churches. Uh, A good friend of mine has been taught this ever since he was a little boy, and he explained it to me like this. He said, Before the New Testament was written, we only knew in part, but now we have the Bible, we have everything we need to know. Prophecies could only tell us a little bit about God's will for us, but now that we've got the Bible, well, God reveals his will to us in the Bible completely. Uh, Before the New Testament was written, we had an imperfect picture of God, but now we've got the scriptures, we have a complete picture of God. The Bible is perfect. Now that that which is perfect has come, we don't need those imperfect spiritual gifts anymore. And he shared this with me. Uh, that, that's what he'd been taught. And I was dumbfounded. I could understand his reasoning, but I was dumbfounded to, to believe that the perfect had already come. To, to me, it's just so obvious that it's talking about when Jesus returns. That's when we'll be perfected. I don't know about you, but 
I'm really looking forward to meeting Jesus face to face, not just reading about him in a book. Uh, now, don't get me wrong, I love the scriptures. The scriptures is, is the best we've currently got. It's, it's how God most commonly reveals himself. It's presently that by which all other revelations of God need to be tried and tested. But the writing of the Bible is not the perfection for which we long. I love the Bible so much that I believe what it says. That the spiritual gifts will pass away. But that will be when perfection comes. Until then, we're told to eagerly desire spiritual gifts. Let's come back to my story of local churches in the 70s and the 80s. For years, uh, most denominational churches had given so little teaching on spiritual gifts. Um, some actively taught that the spiritual gifts, at least some of them, had passed away with the coming of the New Testament. And yet God was doing something in other parts of the world. I sort of suspect that right throughout history, God had been doing amazing things with his spirit in places that weren't so civilised as us. But then it started getting noticeable. In the early 1900s, Pentecostal churches were being born. People were earnestly desiring spiritual gifts, and guess what? They prayed for them and they started turning up. Now, that doesn't mean that everything was good. Uh, actually, there was probably a fair bit of falseness associated with some of this stuff. And we were told to expect this. Jesus told us to watch out for false prophets and for false teachers. We are to discern the difference between false prophets and real prophets. We're told to discern the difference between false teachers and real teachers. But anyway, the spiritual gifts were once again noticeable. And even the more out there supernatural occurrences that perhaps hadn't been noticed for many years were beginning to be a bit more evident. And when the charismatic renewal movement began to touch more traditional churches, all of a sudden, people who had never had good teaching on spiritual gifts were eagerly desiring spiritual gifts and receiving spiritual gifts. And many people felt that for so long they'd been kept in the dark and now their eyes had been opened and, and now they are much more spiritually aware. And God was doing a new thing in those churches. But unfortunately, often, neither side learned the lesson that the Corinthian church had to learn. This purpose of spiritual gifts is not for the building up of the individual, it's for the building up of the body. It's for the building up of the church, not for the tearing apart of the church. The spiritual gifts are given by God and are to be used in love. Spiritual gifts are not the most important thing. They're going to pass away. When Jesus returns, they're finished with. But love endures forever. Even after many decades, spiritual gifts arriving in a church have left a bad taste in some people's mouths because they lived through the hurts and they lived through the splits. I was once told by a Pentecostal pastor 
uh, that one of my predecessors at a church that I used to be a minister in was the reason that his church existed. He said, I, I, wanna thank, I, I need to thank your predecessor for building my church. Uh, to use his words, my predecessor had introduced the church to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The church couldn't handle it, and eventually that church split and formed his Pentecostal church. A spiritual church, a truly spiritual church, doesn't rush off with spiritual arrogance and look down on others as being less spiritual. A truly spiritual church is characterised by faith, hope, and absolutely love. Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. The words of an immature Christian will very quickly cut down another and break the bond of love. The thought bubbles of an immature Christian will often be centred on self instead of on the body. And the reasoning of an immature Christian might very well be just the sort of reasoning that destroys a church. You see, generally children don't function with a sense of order and unity. That's something they need to be taught. Um, play nicely. That's something we have to say quite often, isn't it? Play nicely. Play nicely. An adult understands the importance of order, unity, and love. I think that's as far as we're going to go today. Um, as I said before, this series is going to continue on as, as we keep working our way through, this, through these chapters of Corinthians. The spiritual gifts are temporary. They will pass away. When Jesus returns, we're not going to need them anymore, and I'm really looking forward to that time when we can see Jesus face to face. We'll know him as he knows us. But until then, spiritual gifts are absolutely essential. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Right, let's pray. Lord God, I, I want to thank you that you know us. You know us intimately. You know every part of us. You know our thoughts. You know our hearts. You know our minds. You know our emotions. You know us totally, Lord. And Lord, we, we want to know you. We want to know you deeper and deeper. And Lord, I want to thank you that I want to thank you that you've given us that dim mirror for now. Without it, we, we wouldn't know anything about you. Lord, we want to thank you that for the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that he was born on this earth and, and lived as us, lived as one of us. I want to thank you for the witness that we have of Jesus Christ. I want to thank you that we can learn about Christ 
from the scriptures of the New Testament. This is how you reveal yourself to us first and foremost. But Lord, I also want to thank you for the, for the gifts of the Holy Spirit. For all those gifts that you give for the building up of your church so that you can reveal yourself to us, so that you can speak to us even today. But Lord, we know that that's not going to happen unless we eagerly desire this experience of you. And Lord, all we can say today is we give ourselves to you totally and completely. Lord, if there be any part of any of us, if there be any part of me that is scared of your Holy Spirit, that is scared of the coming of Christ, Lord, I ask that you would deal with that. Lord, we repent of this. And Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would work through us. That you'd pour out your Spirit upon this place, upon this people. And Lord, I pray that you would build your kingdom. Lord, we pray for the gifts of the Spirit, whichever gifts you want us to have. We're not going to be fussy, Lord. We pray that you would just give us these gifts not for our own purpose, not for our own uh, spiritual buzz, but for the building up of your church, for the encouragement of the body, for the preaching of the gospel in this very place. And Lord, I pray that you would touch the hearts of, of those in this district who don't know you and that you would draw them to yourself and Lord, that you would use us as your people who are taking the word out into this district. That you would use us as a people who would love and give and preach and above all witness, be witnesses to the goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we don't want to just do this as some going through of the motions and just tick off and say, yep, we've asked for the Spirit. Lord, we eagerly desire your Holy Spirit in us. We eagerly desire your gifts. And we eagerly desire the fruit of your Spirit. the transformation of our character. In the name of Christ. Amen.